Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shred Sticks. We're on episode 13. Really excited to be able to share this platform again with you guys and give you guys some sports content because obviously the times are crazy right now. And it's on us as Americans, obviously, to become educated and learn from this experience in order to make a better country. But to bring some positivity through sports is what I think I want to do with these episodes coming up because the, such a focus is on this really tough situation that's really important, obviously, but you know, it's a good, good way to bring sports into your lives for sure to bring some positivity. Some things I want to talk about specifically were two things within the NBA and the NHL. <clears throat> Basically there's a proposal the NHL has made that I read recently that I found really interesting and worthy of bringing up as a topic today. So to get right into it, basically the NBA has proposed what they're going to do when there's injuries or COVID cases within the team. So basically they're going to keep the players isolated from the team for when, however it's long as they have COVID, obviously they're going to keep them isolated for two weeks. But what they propose basically to prevent all of this is to have the training staffs really up to date is to basically restrict the players to only having 17 or less players in their roster to have 44 people within the gym at one, or facility at one time or total because they really want to keep them and they're trying to dwindle that down because it's only really going to have like the broadcasters, the players and teams, and that's basically it. No fans are allowed. So basically that's what they're kind of trying to do to make sure everything stays safe and everything like that. But also when, once the postseason starts, they're not allowing free agents to come. They're only allowing two-way players to come because that also is not – it's not allowing COVID to be spread easily because you're having players come from one situation to another. So let's say you have the Utah Jazz, where you said Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell who had it. Let's say they still have, there's some guys who still have exposure to COVID. Having that be a free agent come over could definitely cause some issues for the teams and everything like that. And also, yeah, when the postseason starts, you know, you're not really allowed to have trades anyway. So it's, it's an interesting kind of situation. And the last thing I basically wanted to talk about is that, yeah, there's a, restriction on the pool of players. So basically the amount of players that can, you know, be eligible based on the fact of who has COVID and who doesn't. And the NBA is just obviously Adam Silver is just trying to keep everything safe and trying to instrument a better way to allow players to be safe, but also play at a high level and be able to be healthy going through this entire process through that eight game play in and whatever those eight games before the playoffs and during the postseason, because obviously everyone wants to watch these games. They're still going to be televised and everything like that, but keeping it limited obviously is what the NBA is trying to do and trying to only keep it to the teams, their coaches, their trainers, and then the broadcasters who are coming in, but not a ton of the broadcasters because obviously you want to keep everything safe. They want to keep things socially distanced with the broadcasters and the players, everything like that. And also just keeping the players just socially distanced in general, right? Just, you know, allowing them to, do what they have to do to play basketball again is obviously the important piece. So what I think about all of this is I think this is great. I think, again, it's another thing that Adam Silver is doing right as a commissioner through a whole host of things. Adam Silver has done an incredible job within the NBA. And I think this is just another step in the right direction. So obviously him keeping these safety precautions is great and necessary but also the fact that he's willing to, you know, test these players to make sure they're healthy and ready to go and ready to play in those games 
is going to help the teams. It's going to help the fans be able to watch the games and watch them at the high level when these season comes around. And also it's going to allow everyone in the facility to feel safe because the numbers are limited, which is so important because again, everything with COVID is not having a huge amount of people in a large space or a confined space for that matter. And being able to allow the players to be safe, the players to be able to play at a high level, to be tested, to make sure that they're not asymptomatic and spreading COVID to other players. That's what really is going to come down to. But also it's going to come down to basically the fact of is the NBA going to really make sure these rules are really highly enforced and Based on what Adam Silver's, I would say they would, but you know that's just the big thing with it is you have to make sure these are really enforced at the highest level so that everyone feels that they can play at a high level, they're not worried about getting COVID, and that the NBA is doing their part. <coughs> excuse me, to help these players develop at a high level and also be healthy. I mean, the ultimate part of this is that you know you want these players to develop, you want these players to be ready to go, but you want them to be healthy. So again, another thing from Adam Silver that I think is great, and I think he's really setting the things in the right direction, which is obviously so important because the NBA is so crucial to fans. Everyone likes to watch basketball. But being able to do this is definitely going to allow doing these health measures, I mean, is basically going to allow the players, to again, to be healthy, to be able to play at a high level, to be able to have these games and everyone feel safe about these games and allow people who are within the facilities like broadcasters or writers who are allowed in to be able to feel safe as well from a social distancing aspect of it. Another topic within the NBA is basically they're talking about what are the eight other teams going to do during this time? How are they going to stay competitive? How are they going to develop their young players? Because people don't really take this for granted or they kind of do, I guess, is that the younger teams are just not going to be very good. But the bigger piece of it is that the younger players need to develop, right? Trey Young needs to have a basketball in his hands. Kevin Love, for example, I'm not saying he's not a younger player, but he, you know, he needs to have time to develop with this young group, and he needs to get his game more developed, right? I mean, he needs to get ready for next year. But they also don't want to be sitting around doing nothing either for nine months because – they want to be able to play and be able to play effectively. They want to be able to practice with their teams. They want to be able to compete. And they understand they're not playing in the playoffs, but they want to be able to still compete against the other teams who didn't make it. So they're still getting a chance to develop their young players so that when they play in the future, they'll be able to be more prepared and be better, better equipped to handle the – situations they're going to face on the NBA basketball court when the next season starts. And basically what they proposed is there would be possibility of joint practices between like teams like the Pistons and Bulls. Like they thought the idea of joint practices because that would give the players a chance to develop, do some skill work, really work on their games, but also play against competition. And within these joint practices, like they're like basically the the games they're going to be televised but it's also like the training camps are also going to be televised and those would probably occur within july and august they have a mini camps in august and otas in september basically what they're trying to figure out is how are we going to televise these games how are we going to develop the players 
how are we going to get them against competition? So basically what they're trying to do from all of this is start the training camps, allow joint practices when the league allows it to have different teams play against each other who are not in the playoff picture or not in this 22 team format. So that these teams can play against each other, get exposure, still have their games televised to generate revenue for the team, you know, the franchise and everything like that. And then allow that to get these players exposed to playing against one another and get them ready for next year. Because the players are frustrated because the eight, the eight teams that didn't make it are saying, well, we are not going to be able to play. How are we going to be able to develop? How are we going to be able to play against competition? Like we want to do that. And my stance is, well, you didn't make the playoffs. So there's kind of a sense of being like, well, too bad. You don't, you shouldn't really get what you want. But there's also a sense of me that's also saying too, that, development of these players is really important. So as long as their games don't count for anything, I think this is great because they have to play against each other teams and practice and work on their skill sets. So I guess like my final opinion is that, you know, it's too bad, you know, they didn't really make the playoffs, but as long as you're able to develop the players and be able to put them in some competitive environment, that's really what it comes down to for building skill development and allowing these players to develop the highest level they can. Right. So they're not in the playoff picture. They're not necessarily going to be a team that's going to be competing for the playoff picture. But giving these players a chance to develop is the important piece. There's an interesting, you know, basically the Tony Wrestler, the owner of the Hawks, talked about how they just need competition. They're not, they can't be spending nine months not playing one another, not developing skill, which, again, I agree with them on, right? I'm also saying the fact that I get where you're coming from and I agree that you guys should have practices. You guys should have the ability to play against one another, have joint practices, but you should not be able to have like these huge games that count for something because you guys didn't make the playoffs. And I'm not sure that that's what they were proposing, but I'm saying if they try to do that, I think that's a little too far. The joint practices with some televised for the mini camps and for the joint practices are great because they get to play against one another and compete, which again is the important point for these eight teams because they get the chance to basically compete against one another, develop their skills and get ready for next season. For them, it's going to be about getting ready for next season, getting some competition. So the players feel acclimated back into the culture, back into the game and get their skills ready for the next year. That's really what it comes down to because the 22 teams are, that are in the picture take more precedence, take more importance than the players that are there now from the eight other teams that didn't make it. But the eight other teams still, have, of course, they have, they have a right to do what they want to do. They have a right to develop their players. They have a right to be a part of a system that will allow them to succeed. And I believe that's the important piece when it comes down to it. The 22 teams are definitely more important, and the regulations done for those teams are great and going to allow a lot of fans to see really fun competitive basketball. But the other teams definitely have a, a chance, too, to you know, fight. Even though I'm, I kind of sit there saying, well, too bad you didn't make the playoffs. I'm not saying they don't have a right not to have you know, practices and joint practices and have those televised to generate market value and money. I totally understand that, and I think it's definitely necessary. I just think that that, that shouldn't take more precedence over these 22 games, but that you know, when there's not games going on, having maybe a chance to watch a practice earlier in the day or have a joint practice, say like, oh, look, this is what the already eight teams are doing. I think that's a good idea. And then, you know, having the evening basically have the games going on between the 22 teams that actually are going to be in the playoff picture. So that's where I go on that. And I think it's just, again, another interesting proposal. And I think that it should be done. 
I think the NBA is definitely doing everything they need to to make sure that everything is well put together and developed in the right way to help everyone feel happy and healthy about their situations. And I think that's ultimately the important thing. Ultimately, it's going to bring down the best picture for the NBA by allowing the 22 teams to to do what they're doing right now, but allow the eight teams to also have a chance to develop their players and be a part of a winning culture by developing those players. Now, those eight teams might not win next year either, but allowing them to be in those joint practices against other teams that are not playoff picture, it's still playing against NBA-level competition. So it's going to allow those guys to still sit there and play at a high level and do what they need to do in order to get the young players more acclimated to the NBA season and also more acclimated to their skills and what they need to work on. That's really, I think, what the important piece of them is. It's about developing skills. Strictly is that. That's why I think these practices and training camps would be great. And televising can show maybe the fans of those teams the development of these players and what they've progressed from when they came into these training camps to the end of it. And then they give the fans also a chance to watch those 22 teams, which would be great. And they can have it at like a regional place. They don't actually have to have it in Orlando. But I, even if they do have it in Orlando, it's not a big deal. But having those like regional mini camps, I think they've just decided to do, like that could be a good idea too. And whatever the NBA decides, hopefully they allow the eight teams to basically have that chance to do those joint practices, to have those mini camps and training camps and figure out what they need to do. So that's where my stance on that is for sure. Because again, with the NBA, you always have to have an understanding that the playoff teams are going to take precedence in the viewers' minds and the owners' minds, everything like that for those teams, right? But also the fans are going to want to watch the teams that are in the playoffs as well, more so than the eight teams that are not. And I think it's going to be interesting because I think the development, again, the development of skill set is super important. I think they still deserve to have some competition. So I think, you know, the proposal of regional mini camps is a great idea as long as you're able to keep it in some place that's safe and welcoming, but also has a proper equipment to deal with the coronavirus situation, which is still huge in our country. So I'm really interested to see how this progresses, but I think that was one idea I saw and I really thought was interesting and something that could definitely be progressed going forward. Now, the last topic I want to talk about is the NHL creating committees to deal with diversity. So obviously after this whole situation, things are going to be need to be done in sports to deal with how to market more diversity, how to allow more players to feel that their needs and also their rights and their, their diverse backgrounds are being accepted within the sports that they play. And the NHL has proposed a few ideas, but the one thing they definitely proposed was the integration of these committees with a general counsel. So I'm gonna go into detail basically what these committees do, what the council does, and then basically give my opinion about what I think about all these council things and committees together and what I think it means for the NHL. So basically they created an executive inclusive inclusion council and that basically takes the input and ideas from these committees and then comes together and finds a compromise that works best for the diversity of the NHL and finds solutions that work best for every player who is promoting diversity, but also comes from a diverse background. And that is what basically they do. And it's to basically promote more diversity and allow the players to feel more accepted in the league than they are and feel that their rights and their liberties and everything like that 
are getting properly recognized within the sport. One of the, com the committees, though, is the Player Inclusion Committee, which is made up of current and former NHL players, basically women, women's players in groups from USA and Canada. And they basically try to develop more diverse and better pipelines from youth to professional hockey and promote the players and find ways to basically say, well, how can this player from this background be able to play hockey at this school? How can he do this? How can he get to the professional leagues? What needs to be done within that for players specifically to develop a more diverse pipeline that allows them to feel more included, to feel that they can, if they come from a lower income neighborhood, can still achieve the same status as someone else from a higher income neighborhood, et cetera. Like that's what they're really trying to do. And also just trying to allow the diverse backgrounds of people to be able to come together and not be separate within the sport like hockey. The fan inclusion committee is basically how I consider it is basically the DNA of all the things on a daily basis. So they basically promote the idea that hockey is for everyone. They want to amplify things like black history month and gender equality for all hockey players that, you know, find it of importance, but also it needs to be of relevant importance based on the times that we have now to promote black history month, to promote black ideals, to promote black freedom and also promote gender equality. Cause a lot of times, you know, what, you know, women are not getting respected as much in, as men in hockey and, you know, women play hockey at college sports as sports programs and professionals. So they should definitely be promoted and accepted as well. They also basically are just using their marketing tech. It's a, basically a marketing technique within the fan inclusion uh, committee to outreach to underrepresented groups to allow them to say, okay, how can we help you feel more represented? How can hockey be a, be a, a vehicle for you to feel more represented, to allow your beliefs and your rights be expressed in the way that you want it to be done within the sport. How can we help you feel that you fit into the sport? And I think that's obviously a good, a good committee. And, the, and another committee they have is the Youth <coughs> Inclusion Committee, which experiences the, it's basically talking about the experiences these kids go through and be willing to listen to to these experiences to instruct better inclusion change within their youth hockey teams and cultures. So in essence, they're basically looking at the experience of these kids in, the, in, these, in these youth programs, looking at the experiences of each player, where they come from, what their lives are like, and how, they are, how they're treated within these youth programs. Are they represented properly? Are they being included in everything? Are they allowing or having the best chance to succeed? Are the coaches giving them the best chance to succeed? And then what they're doing then is basically after they get all these, this data and these personal anecdotes and accounts from these players and coaches, they're finding better ways to make the youth programs more diverse and more accountable to include diversity, which again, is, it's a, that's really all, all it's sports needs to be about right now based on these tough times. And then another thing they're doing is they're creating a task force to be created on the issues of development for minority coaches and officials. So basically helping minority coaches and officials feel more welcomed and develop them properly so they could be very successful coaches and the officials could be successful within our sport as well. So my opinion on this, this is actually one of the best proposed systems I've seen so far. The NFL, for example, I, I don't think is doing a very good job within this. And I'll talk about that more next week. But I think that the ho hockey is doing a great thing right now in terms of they have different committees delegated to different stuff to promote diversity in different sectors, which again, during these tough times, that is what needed is needed to be done to help sports 
go to a better place, especially hockey, right? In other sports like that, where diversity isn't as high in those sports, right? But allowing that to take precedence and allowing youth hockey to be more diverse and give people from more diverse backgrounds a chance to play at higher levels and be able to showcase their skills is critical. And that the NHL is also willing to take fans input, to take players input and to learn how to develop the youth programs better, to talk to them about that, to develop how players play in high school, to play in the juniors, playing college, how that all gets based around diversity. And I think that's super important and super critical to what's going on in the world because the NHL, again, is a predominantly white sport um, and a promoting diversity around it is going to just make it better and it will allow different people to have different experiences and also will allow rights of those people to be promoted in the sport so they feel included that they feel that everything they have fought for and worked at will actually be recognized by the sport and that is so important when it comes down to the end of the day that people are willing to change their beliefs and promote diversity in a constructive and positive way so that the sport can get better. And the NHL is looking to doing that. And I really commend them on that. Them and the NBA have done an excellent job so far about doing that kind of stuff. The NFL should learn from this and try to do better from what they're proposing. And federally, the NHL, again, is doing that. should really give a lot of hockey fans a lot of positivity, but also a lot of happiness and joy that this is happening too. But it also should just show that this can be done in other sports too that are predominantly white or just other sports that are, are, are a mixture of different racial backgrounds and different diverse backgrounds and everything like that because diversity is great in everything. So why can't, you know, other sports adopt this same principle that the NHL has done? And I think that's the NHL has done an unbelievable job with this and I really commend them for that. So those are going to wrap it up on my topics, but basically as always, um, I produce episodes weekly and you know I'm, I'm, I'm always willing to support everyone during these tough times so if you want to be on a future episode let me know and uh yeah